So I'm teaching up at a Bible camp this week, and I'm going through the book of James in the morning sessions, and so I thought to make, make them into a podcast. So I already missed yesterday morning, so you won't get James 1. But uh, you can get James 2 to 5. Hopefully helpful. Uh, James chapter 2, we're going to get through uh, the whole chapter today, and instead of me kind of messing around uh, with that, because it wasn't really working yesterday, we're just going to have that up for you. For those of you who don't have a Bible, you can take a look at it as we go through. So you remember all the themes that James unpacked uh, in chapter 1, and so now he's going to jump into those and kind of explain uh, a few more random scenarios and then unpack uh, those themes even uh, even more. So James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers... He says, um, in the Greek, that can be brothers and sisters, so don't feel, you know, left out, ladies. He's not just talking to your husbands, all right? Which is like, yeah, you better listen up, boy. The Bible's got some things to say to you, not that you've ever thought that before. uh, This text isn't about your friends, all right? It's not about your your neighbor. It's not about your family member. uh, It's about you, and it's about what God's calling you to do, not what God's calling the people in your life that you think are worse off than you to do. So he says, show no partiality. If you've got about underline that, no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so uh, this is the, 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 probably the fourth or fifth time that he's mentioned the word faith. He's going to unpack the concept of faith. But the first thing I have to say is faith is not something that is just like a generic concept. Every single person in this room, even if you're an atheist, even if you're an agnostic, um, you have a faith position. I talk about this in my uh, book, The Problem of God, the question of does everyone have a faith position? And the illustration I give uh, in, the, in that book is the story of my family who they all believe they're atheists or agnostics uh they don't believe in god at all that was the family i was raised in like to the point where my father uh was so atheistic he didn't let my mom spell my brother's name with two t's his name is matthew he's four years older than me because she didn't want to spell it uh he didn't want her to spell it in a way that was biblical so there's the gospel of matthew and he said i don't want a bible spelling of my kid's name and then four years later they called me mark so clearly he'd never opened a bible before the irony was (laughs) lost on him he has no idea what's actually in the bible at all uh and so that's the kind of the, the world I grew up in. And uh, a couple years ago, two or three years ago, I guess it was two summers ago, I was actually up here uh, teaching and my grandma passed away. He was very close to, she was 91 years old. And I found out while I was here one evening uh, a couple years ago and I flew back after I was done at Green Bay and, and did her funeral. And my atheistic agnostic family would say things like, well, at least she's not suffering anymore, which is a fascinating concept because what they fail to understand is that that's a faith position. They're making a statement about what happens in the afterlife. That's a metaphysical statement. It's saying that here's what happens to the soul. It doesn't suffer. And you've probably met people like this, right? People who don't believe in God, they think they don't have a faith position, but they're willing to say things like, well, at least they're not suffering anymore. And here's what eternity is and so on. It's all of these concepts that you've got to go to yourself. No, you actually believe things about the afterlife. You just don't recognize you actually have a faith position. You don't have evidence for that faith position to be real. But if I'm going to believe something about the afterlife, I'm going to base it on something that happened historically, history, the resurrection of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the Bible, because they're informing my faith. So the question is not whether you have faith. Everybody has a window to which they look out to the world and answer the big questions. Everyone has a faith position in this room. Um, and, uh, and what matters about a faith position is literally what it looks out on. What is the content of the faith? And the example I, I uh, often give is um, 
Uh, in 2006, we were having our first daughter, Sienna, and, and my wife was very pregnant. It was August. And so we took our last kind of, I don't know what they call it, a baby moon or something, you know, just before you get, you know, just before you, you, you actually have a baby, uh, you go and enjoy life because you know your life's about to be ruined for 20, 22 years. So, uh, and so I took her over and we didn't have any money at this time. So I was very cheap, you know, way back then. Um, uh, and so we went over to Victoria, uh, over to the island, and uh, I found this hotel kind of, and I, I was online, I was like, okay, that's too much a night, that's too much a night, that's, so I found a nice looking hotel from the outside, but I found like the cheaper version of, on the scale. So I was like, okay, this will be fine, you know, we don't know any better anyway. So we went over and, and we, we get in the elevator, and we go up, and it would, I knew something was off when we got to the, got to the actual uh, desk, and the guy, like, he looked at the number, and he kind of gave us a funny look, and then there were, like, two kinds of keys, and he gave us, like, the older key. It was, like, the key he hadn't touched in a while. And so he handed that, and we went up, the elevator opened, and there was, like, a split in the, in the, in the, in the wall. It was, like, one side of it was really, like, beautiful and nice and shiny, and the other side was, like, gross, like, disgusting brown. And I was like, please, we have to go this way, we have to go this way. And I looked down at my number, I'm like, no, we're going this way. So we went this way, and we opened up the door, and this room hadn't been touched since the 1970s. Like, literally, there was shag carpet, there was a TV with, like, two ears coming out of it. I don't even understand what that, two metal pieces. Uh, and it was literally, there was a whole thing of dust on it. Like, it was disgusting. And then I'm like, well, at least we'll have a nice view of the harbor, all right? And so we, I opened up the thing, and it was literally two feet in front of us, there was a brick wall. No joke. A brick wall, and my wife just started, very pregnant wife, started crying and crying and saying, why are you so cheap? Why did you bring me here? You know, you're an idiot. And so then I had to go down and, like, woo the guy, you know, hey, just give him, you know, anyway. So, point being, you Okay. Yeah, good. Point being, what you're looking out on matters. Everyone has a view, which is faith. It's the content of what the window that you're looking out on that actually matters. What is your view? Do you believe we came from nothing? Do you believe God created the universe? What's the question of meaning? What's the question of purpose? What's the question of where we came from, where we're going, meaning, purpose, origins, morality, all of that? Everyone has a faith position, and what James wants to talk about is a faith position which is, which is, which is Christ-centered. It's, it's that your faith position actually is a faith, he says, in our Lord Jesus Christ. That that is the faith position that changes your life, that gives you eternal life, that saves you. It's the only faith position that does. And so his challenge to the world is, is your, the, the, the content of your faith actually the person in the work of Jesus. And so he says, verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, meaning where the church is gathered, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions, underline that if you've got a pencil, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Here's what he's saying. The world is constantly sizing people up based on what they can give you, based on their social status, based on how much they make. And they decide whether they hang out with people, the people they spend time with, the things that they do based on how much people make, their social standing, their reputation. And he's, and I, he's calling out every single one of us in this room because we all do it too. And he's saying the church is supposed to be different. Do not show favoritism to people based on what they can give you, based on how much they make. And some of you in this room literally 
Decide and define your time and energy based on who are the people who are just like me. They vote like me, they talk like me, they dress like me, they act like me, they make a bunch of money, and so I like to hang out with those people. The people that are harder to hang out with are the poor, the people who might smell a little bit different, the people who vote a little bit different, who talk a little bit different. They're so hard to hang out with. I got young kids, they swear every once in a while. This is actually kind of hard to do. I like people that look like me and they're safe and they're nice, and you show favoritism and partiality and he's saying that is a sin for instance if uh, Green Bay Bible Camp had a speaker that was up here and he had young kids and they really wanted to be on the recap video every day and they weren't yet and they were upset and they were talking to their dad about it and saying is there anything you can do and they showed partiality to those children because they wanted said speaker back the next year then that might be something they could do for that guy. But it would be wrong. It would be dead wrong showing partiality to children for one reason or another so you get something out of it. Sinners! So he says, don't do that. All right, do not show partiality to people just because of their money or the people who they are. Go back and read Matthew 5. Jesus says, you know, we all want to hang out with people just like us. And he says, but don't the pagans do that. Everyone wants to love and hang out with people who can love them back. But Christians don't do that. They love people who can't love them back and who have nothing to offer them. That's the way to be truly human. So get out of your brain that you only love the people that are easy to hang out with. He's saying we have to be completely alternative people in the world and we actually have to hang out and do the kinds of things that grate against us that we don't want to do. I had a friend who... Um, he was in Starbucks a few weeks ago and he was having a meeting and he was dressed up in a really nice suit and he was meeting with a guy with a really nice suit and they were talking business, they were downtown Vancouver and they were talking and chatting about stuff and all of a sudden he felt this hand on his arm and he turned around and it was a homeless guy and he was homeless, he was smelling up the entire Starbucks and smelling, reeked and he was all shaggy and dirty and he's like, hey bro, can you buy me a coffee and a sandwich? All right, because and he had nothing to lose. He's like, boom, and my buddy's like, nah, I don't know what to do. And the guy who was sitting across from him just looked up at the guy, looked at him, he goes, he stood up, he's like, I'm out. And he just leaves the coffee shop and leaves this guy to like sit there and like, I don't know what to do now. And so he's got all these, he's like, ah, uh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But then it wasn't quick because there was 20 people in the line. So he's just standing there with this guy and he's like, how do I get out of this? I just want to give him my debit card and just leave because, listen, here's the thing. It's actually easier for us to write a check than spend time with people who need us. It's way easier for this room for you to give money. I used to go down to downtown Vancouver to this place called Potter's Place every week with my young adult. I was a young adult pastor for a bunch of years. And we used to go and we used to have to lead a worship service and preach to all these homeless people who are just waiting for food. And it was kind of a bait and switch because you know they're there for the food, but they can't get the food unless they sit through the worship service. And so you're sitting there and you're like, they don't want to listen to me. They just want their food. And I remember my buddy... I didn't really control the worship set. He's like, okay, I'll get the worship set tomorrow. And he gets up, and the first song he actually sung was the song Hungry. Remember that song? Hungry, I come to you. I'm like, no, you're not actually singing Hungry in a soup kitchen right now, are you? Anyways, uh, and so... Uh, Anyway, it, it, it's way, listen, it was way, when we're hanging out with those people and we're like, 
you know, casting out demons in their life and they're dealing with addiction and hearing their stories about a sexual abuse and the, the reason they're on the street. Man, that is a much harder ministry to fill than if I just ask those guys, hey, raise some money and send a check down a, a, check down a potter's house. That's what, not chip down. <laughs> a check down a potter's It's way easier to send a chick and a check down a potter's house, deliver it, than it is to go yourself. And actually invest your time and energy into the life of people who need you. And Jesus says, don't do that. My life as a pastor would be way easier if I just spent time doing the things that I'm actually wired to do and that I love to do. I love to do strategy. I love to do philosophy. I love to preach and teach and develop leaders and church planters, inspire people and woo people to big vision, to go out and die for their faith. That's what I love to do. What I'm really bad at is like one-on-one counseling because I don't have like the gift of mercy. In that way, I'm not really a good pastor. I'm more of like a leader of a missionary group. I'm not like a, hey, I know you. I feel you. I know your name. I mean, it's, it's hard. And so what happens is, is I have to force myself to do counseling. And what happens is, is in those moments of marriage counseling, I'm sitting across from these people and my apostolic brain is having no sympathy for their situation because their, their problems are so easy to solve. It's like, how are you this dumb? How can't you figure this out? All right, uh, well, you know, he doesn't do the laundry properly and he doesn't speak my love language and die. It's like, figure this out. This is easy. Well, you know, we're figuring out the intimacy. It's like, put it on the calendar. Tuesday, Thursday. Take the guesswork out of it. This is so easy. Why are we sitting here for four sessions talking about this? I just want to smack them. Anyways, um, I've literally had marriage counseling meetings where I'm like, I can't actually believe what we're talking about right now. Like marriage is falling apart because she started drinking coffee. And I'm like, what? He's like, when we got married, she said she wouldn't drink coffee. And now she drinks coffee. And her breath smells. And I don't like it. And I think she does it just to drive me crazy. (laughs) This is an actual marriage counseling session I had. And my pastoral heart just wanted to punch him in the throat, right? Like, because she's had a couple kids, maybe that's why she needs coffee, because you're a clown. Maybe that's why she needs coffee. You fool. Anyways. Uh, okay, so anyway, my point being, my, my strategy brain starts going, this is so easy to solve your problems that I don't want to even do marriage counseling anymore because that's not my, that's not my zone. That's not the lane I want to run in. It's not the lane that gives me, that's fun for me. I don't want to sit and tell a guy to stop playing video games and he's 45 years old trying to figure out what's wrong with his marriage. Literally, this couple came in, their whole marriage was dissolving. He said she couldn't spend $1.50 on a coffee every day. She needed to do two days because of budget. And he would sit on his phone every night for two hours playing video games and it was attached to all of his homies because they would try to build armies to fight each other. I literally was everything in my power not to just explode and just say, please leave. I can't even look at you. You're not even a man. You're a boy. This is called delayed, prolonged adolescence and you're still a 14-year-old boy playing Mario Kart. Grow up. Get a job. Anyway, so um, (laughs) this is why they don't let me do marriage counseling very often. But the point is is sometimes you got to dip down and do the things that are making you uncomfortable, not for them, but for you. Because every moment, something grates against you. Every time you spend time with the poor, every time you spend time with people you don't like, every time you spend time with people who are hard to be around, 
They're making you more into the image of Jesus. Because believe it or not, when Jesus married the church, you and me, he married messed up, flawed people who cheat on him and defile. Every day we walk away from him. And he came and he moved toward us, not away from us. And that needs to be the posture of your life because you're being conformed to the image of Jesus every time you decide to sacrifice your emotional energy, your psychological energy, your spiritual energy, your money, in order to be with people who you don't necessarily like. And in that moment, you're not showing partiality. And that's what he said. The people of God are the people who do not make distinctions. And so he says, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? See, it's the rich who have the money to start dragging people into court. It's the rich who have the time and the energy to be able to do things that actually end up oppressing people, what James is saying. Of course, not all rich people oppress people. He's saying generically, generally speaking. And in fact, the Christians were being oppressed uh, by the rich in in the community he was writing to. They drag you into court. They sue you. And they are not the one. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. That they have so much money that they don't need to worry about God in the end. And I was reading a story recently about a uh, group of people who were, uh, and I shared this with my church a few weeks ago, we were preaching on the Great Commission, and it was the question of whether they were going to use their resources and steward them toward the mission or just themselves and their own comfort. And there was a story told of these uh, hikers that were going up a mountain And their hiking tour guide said, you only need to bring the bare necessities. Don't get a whole bunch of useless stuff and pile it in because it's going to weigh you down as a metaphor for life. But he's saying, literally, when we go up this mountain, you can't, you just bring the bare necessities, water, your your tent, you know, whatever. And some of the people wanted to bring excess stuff. And so they brought, uh, one guy brought a bottle of wine, a whole block of cheese, and a whole bunch of uh, camera lenses and stuff because he wanted to take pictures. And he said, you're not going to make it up the mountain. Leave the excess stuff behind. Just bring the, because that's what's going to help you accomplish the mission. No, no, it brings up. So he went up ahead of them. And he went up about three or four hours ahead of them. And as the rest of the team went up, bare necessities, they started seeing things as they started climbing. First, it was a half-eaten block of cheese just sitting on the side of the snow. And then it was one camera lens. And then another. And then another. And then his bottle of wine, completely empty, you know, (laughs) sitting on the side of the mountain. And, uh, and they got up to the top of the mountain and he'd shed all this stuff and he's sitting at the top of the mountain. And then the guy who wrote in this book, it's a, it's a devotional for, for, for people, uh, like it's 56 years old. He, he makes this comment. He says, um, uh, oftentimes what happens is, is people, when they get into those positions where they have to choose, now the metaphor was of course getting more of God or less of God, keeping all your excess stuff or shedding it. In that moment where they have to choose where they, whether they shed the excess stuff, what oftentimes happens is they choose to give up the top and settle in the plains. And that's what happens to so many people in this room is we give up getting more of God and we settle for the comfort of things that riches give us. And that's what James is calling us out for. Are you willing to shed the excess stuff of your life to get more of him or will you keep the excess stuff and give up the top and go, I don't actually need that much of him. I'm fine with lowest common denominator stuff. I'm good here. I'm in the zone here. I'm fine. I'm not willing to give up all that comfort in order to get more of him. And James is saying, be very careful. So he says, uh, verse 8, 
if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and then he quotes the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. How difficult is loving your neighbor? I don't even, sometimes I don't even know my neighbors. I've lived in my house for a year and I had to get my buddy to introduce himself to my literal neighbor because I forgot their name. Probably means I'm not loving them very well. When I was in church planting assessment, uh, we were trying to figure out whether we were going to be church planters. And of course, the whole point about being a church planter is you can reach people for Jesus and you're going to reach your neighbors for Jesus. And so me and Aaron went in. It was three days of grueling hard work, psychological tests, uh, things where they would come and the whole group of us was there, a whole bunch of people being assessed whether they're church and entrepreneurs. And they threw a box in the middle of the thing and they just walked away and they go, figure it out. You have one hour. And nine people sat at a desk and took notes. And so everyone's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be like entrepreneurial leader? Am I supposed to be humble, meek, like, yeah, servant, pastor type? I don't know. And so we'd all kind of get, anyway, so that I got up and preached and nuanced my vision plan and all this stuff. I'm like, oh man, I'm ready for any question that they hit me with. They're going to throw any kind of ecclesiological, all right, epistemological throw at me. Oh, I'm going to be ready. Oh, here we go. Here we go. And so I'm like, do my little, well, it's Acts it's the church, the gospel, come to Christ. Uh, and first guy raised his hand. He goes, let me ask you a question. Uh, what's your neighbor's name? And I was living in a little apartment. And I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And I, I'm like, um, um, um. And, I, and, and Aaron's just sitting there. She's like, it's Joanne. And they look at her, and, like, and they take their little notes, right? And look at me. <laughs> and then and then I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, hold on. I didn't know that one. I said, but the reason I didn't know that one is because we just moved about three months ago. And then I looked over at my wife and she winced. And they go, okay, that's fair. What was the neighbor's name of the house you moved from? <laughs> anyway, then she said... <laughs> Her name is Sarah. She just had surgery. So she passed and I failed. Anyway, so you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a harder thing than we think it is. Actually loving neighbor. Who are your neighbors? Your literal neighbors. The people who are, how do you love them? Because he's saying this is what fulfills the law. Remember his whole point is don't be people what she's going to get to. Don't be people who have a whole bunch of beliefs, but you don't live it out and do something, which is all about the credibility of the church, right? Because I don't know about you. How many of you in this room have friends who say, I don't want to become a Christian because of the hypocrisy of Christians and the church is lame and they don't actually do anything. How many of you have friends like that who just go, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. It's a joke. The people are a joke. This is what he's calling out. And he's saying, don't be the kinds of people who live in a life where you just have beliefs and you don't actually live it out. And some of you, all of you should have friends like that. And if you don't, you're not loving your neighbor well. So if I ask you again, you should all put your hands up, but you're not because James is writing to you. Verse nine, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, so it's very interesting. He's trying to say, um, he's trying to take away any kind of pride that certainly can exist in this room where you say to yourself, at least I'm not as much a sinner as, much a sinner as they are. So he's saying, um, if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. Ergo, all of us are a disaster. We're all in the place of the, the deep need of the grace of God. And the minute you start to say, yeah, but at least I'm not that bad. 
At least I'm not a sinner like them. At least I'm not as greedy as them. At least I'm not as promiscuous as them. At least I'm not as evil as them. He says, no, you don't understand. You're actually all in the same boat because if you've broken one thing, you've broken it all, which is exactly the point of the prodigal son story that they did last night with the kids, but they actually missed a part of it. Because that story isn't about one lost son who went out and did a bunch of bad things. It's about two. And after where they ended off, where this reckless son goes out and lives their life and lives with prostitutes and spends all his money, there's another son, which is probably more representative in this room, which is the religious brother who looks in at the father and says, I've never done anything wrong. Why don't you accept me? Look at this younger brother of mine. He spent all your money on prostitutes. He went out and did everything wrong. I can't believe you actually accepted him by your grace. And at the end of the story, the tragedy is the older brother, the religious people, the people who come to Green Bay are the ones who are left out of the party and not saved because they decided they were too righteous and they compared themselves to sinful people and they couldn't accept and receive the grace of the Father. There's two lost people in that story, not one. And so he's saying, let's all be very careful and know that we're all in the same playing field. You've broken one, you've broken them all. Join the party, you need the grace of Jesus, every single one of you, even if you literally became a Christian as you came out of your mother's womb. Don't picture that very long. <laughs> Especially you, bro. Okay. Verse 10, verse 11, for he who said, listen to this, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now remember, before you start going, I've never murdered anyone, I've never cheated on my life. Remember how Jesus redefines both those sins in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you've lusted ever after another man or woman, you have already committed adultery. And if you've ever hated a person, you're already guilty of murder. So again, we're all in the same boat. The minute you go, I've never murdered anyone, I've never committed adultery, I'm good, he's not talking to me. He is talking about you because the question is the question of your heart. If you've postured your heart and said, I don't like that person, you've already murdered them. And this is where Christianity actually makes it much harder than the, see, the Old Testament is like, don't murder people. It's like, how hard is that? My kid's got a, you know, a grade five teacher. She hates him. She's against him. I know she is. Man, I don't like that woman. Hate that woman. But every time I show up, hello, how are you? It's good. It's nice. You're good. I didn't kill her. Wanted to. Never stabbed her. Old Testament, you're fine. New Testament, guilty. You murdered her because you murdered her in your heart. Never cheated on my husband. Ever thought about a guy? Ever looked and gone, oh my goodness. Seems like Joanne and Dave are always on some vacation and I'm sitting around here with him. Why can't you be as successful as Dave? What's your problem? You've already committed adultery in your heart. You're already guilty. Yeah, but I've never actually done it. Doesn't matter. You're already guilty. And so he's trying to say, do you realize how in need of the grace of Jesus we all are? Do not begin to think that you're above this. And so he says, so speak and so act, verse 12, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a scary verse. He's saying judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If you look at the people around you and show them no mercy and no grace and give them no margin to, to mess up, 
to mis- do a mistake, to wrong you. If you show those people no mercy, God will show no mercy to you. So be very careful the measure that you put on people, how long you hold on to that thing that that person did against you. Because the minute you do that, the same measure is going to be put against you. And so now he shifts into the main point of chapter two and he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Remember, Christocentric, Christological, Jesus-centered faith, not just like faith generically. Um, What good is it if you say you have Jesus-centered faith but does not have work. So circle both those things because that's the comparison. <clears throat> Can that faith save him? Can you be saved if you just believe a bunch of stuff? I believe in the Trinity. I believe Jesus died. I believe this. But it doesn't flow out to a life that represents what you believe. He answers it. If a brother or sister, verse 15, is poorly clothed, back to the poor image, and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See what he's saying? It's so easy for you and I to give people really good advice about stuff and go, hey, this is what you should do with your life. This is what I know. Help them out. Write a check. Send it over. Whatever. But actually doing something to help them. Saying, oh man, that person's a mess. I wish they wouldn't have done that with their life. So um, this, is, uh, this is some stats that I, uh, that I read about uh, Christianity basically being a, a, a faith with just beliefs but no works uh, about in, the, in the context of hypocrisy. Uh, it is often those who have adopted this cultural form of Christianity who create the image problem for Christians. For instance, several years ago, a poll was taken that showed that the lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically the same as those people claiming not to be Christians when it came to the following list. Gambling, visiting pornographic websites, taking something that didn't belong to them, saying mean things behind someone's back, consulting a medium or a psychic, having a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs, saying something to someone that's not true, getting back at someone for something they did, and consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. There was no statistical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in all these 10 areas of their lives. The only activity that was less common for Christians, and this is not a joke, was recycling. 68% of of Christians recycled versus 79% of non-Christians. Meaning, we have a whole bunch of Christians who claim to be Christians and it's never actually done anything with their life except what they believe. They just believe some different stuff than their neighbors. But it doesn't change how... Visiting psychics, where's your theology at? Where's your life at? If this, and this is what the world looks at, and James is calling it out and going, my goodness, you've learned too well the idea that, well, faith will save me and I'll just go to heaven when I die because I believe some stuff. I came forward out of camp. I raised my hand. I said a prayer at an Easter service. Boom, I'm in. And James just went, really? Because every judgment passage in the entire New Testament evaluates what you did with your life. John 5, Romans 2, Revelation 21, Matthew 25. All of them. Judgment seat. It doesn't say, what songs did you sing? What did you do? I was thirsty. Did you give me water? I was naked. Did you give me clothes? Every single one of them. It's very convicting. It's very hard. 
It's very difficult. That's the point. So he says, verse 18, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Here's James. You do well. Oh, listen to this very haunting phrase. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You believe some stuff, he's saying, but you don't actually do anything with it. You believe God's one. You have good theology. Cool. Satan has way better theology than you. You know that, right? He's way more theologically apt than you are. He actually knows everything about God and it doesn't save him. That's what he just said. Demons believe the right stuff. They're in five Bethmore Bible studies a week. They read Oswald Chambers every day. And they're going to hell. So my buddy lost his Apple Watch yesterday in the water. And uh, I was sitting out reading my Bible, being godly, prepping for my talk this morning. And he came by and he needed help. So me and my other buddy, I'll call him Trevor because that's his name, uh, were on this chair. And uh, he came by and he said, hey, I'm going to go look for my Apple Watch. And our other friend, I'll call him Quentin because that's his name, he said, oh, let me help you. And he pulled out this, you know, scuba gear and, and they went out together. And me and Trev looked and watched and told them what to do and then went back to reading. That's the difference right here. You can be the kinds of people who believe some stuff and point your friend out and say, oh, look at him, he's never going to find that dumb thing. Anyways, the Bible, I'm reading about God, I've got work to do, I have people to preach to, I'm doing God's work here. Or you can be like Quentin, who goes, you know what, I'm going to go out and actually help him do something. And he found it. And he found it. Because of my prayers, I was <laughs> intercessing and fasting for him on the beach. <laughs> The difference between Christians in the Western world is most of us are sitting around like me and Trevor on a beach doing devos. And we're not getting into the water to help anyone with anything because it don't benefit us. And James just said, I'm not actually sure you're saved. Because that's what demons do. Verse 21. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And now he gives two Old Testament examples. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Of course, God comes and says, I want you to kill your son. And Abraham said, okay. It wasn't enough for Abraham to sit around and say, well, I know I have good theology, blah, blah, blah. God says, I don't care what you think right now. I want to know that what you believe actually translates to what you're going to do, so you're going to kill your son for me. So Abraham says, okay, and he goes up the mountain, and he goes to kill his son, and he doesn't end up killing. Of course, it's a foreshadow of what God's going to end up doing, and it's beautiful, because if God only just said he loved us, but he didn't live it out through giving his own son, right, he gave Jesus for us, then we're all not saved. That's the point. So we can't just go, well, at least God knows the right stuff. At least he votes right. At least he listens to the right music. At least he watches the right movies. He's got to actually live it out and say, love means and faith means I act and I give up my son. And so he says, look at Abraham. God says he was righteous because he actually did something. Verse 22. 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works, by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It fills it out. It doesn't mean it saves you. It means that's what a saved person looks like. You can't separate the two. One flows from the other. And then he says, verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For, and, and so this is an Old Testament story from Joshua. Messengers come in, they're spying out the land. People are trying to kill them. She hides them in her house and lies. And the rest of the Bible says that she was great for doing that, which probably means that, you know, if you're a Christian in World War II, you could probably hide Jews and lie about it, and that's okay. Uh, for some reason, people have like this moral question of what's the right thing to do. It's like, that's the right thing to do. It happened all the time in the Bible. Rahab's one of them. And in fact, Matthew tells us that Rahab was a prostitute, but she's in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew because she goes through the line of Joseph, uh, Jesus' father. And so, what you have to, and now what's fascinating about this is, therefore, when James cites Rahab, Rahab's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Which means, interestingly enough, it hit me today, she's actually the great, 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 great grandmother of James. He cites his own grandma. And he says, you know who my grandma was? She was a hooker. That's where her moral life was at. She was a prostitute. God will use anybody to do anything that he wants to, no matter your background. And there's some people sitting here right now saying, you have no idea what I've done with my life. You have no idea what I did last week. You have no idea what I'm planning on doing next week. God can never use me. And the reality of the Bible is he will use anybody who's emptied out and willing enough to do what he asks them to do. My, my story is a disaster, atheistic family. My aunt killed herself. She was schizophrenic. She, she jumped off a building, killed herself. <clears throat> my parents got divorced. Every reason in the book, there's no way I should be standing here doing this, be a Christian at all, is a miracle that a guy walked into woodworking class when I was 18 years old and said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And I somehow, out of the fog of drugs and parties and whatever else, went, yeah, Jesus, that's interesting. <clears throat> and some of you are like, yeah, you can never use me because of my background. I'm the poster boy for that. And James is citing Rahab and saying, look at her life and look how God used her. I got through all of chapter 2 in half an hour. Praise the Lord. It's a miracle. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, you are, um, you are good and you call us to much bigger things than just believing a bunch of stuff. And I pray that this room right now feels that and understands it and lives in light of it. I pray as we enjoy this time up here that it's also time that we reevaluate our lives as I've been reevaluating mine against the mirror of James and saying do I love my neighbors well or am I too busy <clears throat> am I doing more too much important work that I'm forgetting how to love and how to live this thing out in deeds versus just concepts so you're speaking to me and I just pray you speak to all of us and that we would rise up and be a group of people who does this well who actually love and serve people by works, not by concepts, and that ergo, that witness, and that testimony would go out to change people. That we would spend time in the busyness and the craziness of 
the fun of our time here to maybe write down a few things that we think we can improve. Of course, the reality of the gospel is we don't get into heaven because of these things. It's, the, it's, it's not the means by which we are saved. It's the trajectory of our life when we are saved. It's, it's, the, it's the fruit of it. This is where this goes and that we're hard on ourselves as James is being hard on us to, to evaluate our lives to see if it actually lives up to obedience, which is the mother of the knowledge of God. I pray that you do that in our lives. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. All right, you have uh, about 14 minutes before you pick your kids up. So adult free time. Have fun.